Did I have this mic on the whole time? Oh, man. If, we, if you would, turn the Bible to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. Few things are as fulfilling and satisfying as accomplishing and finishing a big project. Whether it's a home project, whether it's a school assignment, whether it's something you've been saving up for, a task that you've been working at for a long time, once it is finally completed, there's such a good feeling, such relief. Nehemiah has had this giant burden of wanting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we have come to chapter 6 where it is finished. In our passage today, we're going to look at all of chapters 6 and 7. That's, lo- that's a lot, I know. That's a lot of verses. But if you'll look at chapter 6, verse 15, you will see the statement. That's like the most important part. 6.15 says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. This giant project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem is finished And it took them 52 days. You know, I've heard a joke where somebody said, we've been studying Nehemiah longer than it took Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem. That's true. This is the word of God, and there's 13 chapters here. And so we're going to devote ourselves to it. But we've come to the place where the wall is finished. What a cool thing that is. Now, you know that this is not the end of the book. We're about halfway through it. There are 13 chapters. And so it raises the question, okay, well, what's the rest of the book going to be about? What's going on here? Well, that's interesting. They've got the walls built back, and now everybody needs to come back to Jerusalem and be established as a city. See, they couldn't live there. They couldn't be the people of God. They couldn't function. They couldn't do what they were doing because they didn't have the walls. They weren't really set up. They were vulnerable. They were broken down. It's been 80 years of this. And so now that the walls are built back, they need to learn how to be the the city of Jerusalem again. And that's what the rest of the book is about. It's good. Today we're looking at the wall is finished, the completion. And I want to be careful here to not make it. And I said this at the beginning when we started Nehemiah. I want to be careful here to not make this whole sermon just spiritual, meaning just, I want us to, uh, how just this applies to us, I want us to see that this was a hard task, they labored at it, and they got it done. But I also want us to know that God is a God who accomplishes his purposes. Both of those things are true. Don't we love it when Jesus, hanging on the cross, cried out, it is finished. You remember that expression, right? The work, the job that God had sent him to do, to offer up his holy life for the sins of the world, was finished. He did it. He went all the way to death. He went all the way to the wrath of God. He went all the way to the judgment of God upon people and took it for us. It was a hard road to get there. And it was finished. God wants us to know that God is a finishing 
God. God accomplishes his purposes, and the Bible teaches us this. Today's sermon is on chapter 6 and 7 where we see this coming about. In starting, I want us to read the first 15 verses. Read with me. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And in the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done for you, inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabal, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to take me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. The first point that I want to make this morning is Nehemiah was determined to stay focused on the work. And I want to encourage you this morning that it will take a determination in your life for you to stay focused on the calling with which God has given you. For you to stay focused on the work that God has placed you in. The Christian life requires determination. Nehemiah was determined to stay focused on the work. He was determined to not allow himself to get distracted. Can we all acknowledge here today that there are so many distractions in life. And I don't want to just talk about that. I want to raise the awareness that there are so many distractions to the Christian life. It seems that all of us and so many of us will say, well, I, I would live for God, but. Or I'm trying to live for God, but this. Or I would do better in this area, in this direction, or I'd be more faithful there, except, and then we've got these excuses. Nehemiah here is in the very same position of all of us. He has lots of excuse. He has many distractions. There, there are things getting in the way. 
three real big examples come up. The first is fake friendship. They act like they want to spend time with him now. These are the, some of the guys that have been opposing him, but it's a fake friendship. They're faking it, and Nehemiah is able to perceive that. Then he recognizes that they are lying to him, and they are saying things that are not true and trying to get him to come together for a peaceful counsel, but he knows that. Then there are people that are trying to scare him, that people are coming to kill him, and they've gotten the, they've gotten the message from the prophet that people are coming to kill him. Matter of fact, so much so, they try to get him to go hide out inside of the temple, which he is not able to do. He is not a priest. He knows better than to do that. These are major distractions. These are not just distractions, but these are distractions in the line of work, in the line of business, in the line of professionalism, in the line of spiritual life, in the line of faith, in the line of religion. These are big, real, legitimate distractions. And yet Nehemiah models for us that he is determined to stay focused on the work, to not get distracted. Do you remember when those young Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and they had a legitimate excuse of why they may not have been as faithful to God, right? They were living through it. They were being completely indoctrinated, right? They were being brainwashed and all of that. And yet Daniel 1.8 says they resolved to not defile themselves. They determined They settled in their hearts and minds, we will not rebel against God. We will not turn away. Look at verse 3. Nehemiah answers back of them asking him five different times to come to a meeting. Nehemiah answers back in verse 3, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? while I leave it and come down to you. Nehemiah understands that the main thing needs to remain the main thing. Nehemiah understands that there might be a lot of good things that get in the way of great things. Nehemiah understands that if you are going to be what you have set out to be, you've got to understand that distractions will get in the way. It seems to me that there are a lot of Christians or a lot of people that are viewing Christianity and they think that once everything comes together, then they will gladly live for God. They are Christian and once all of the hurdles are in the past, then they will live a life for God. Church, can we remind ourselves here today or learn today that that is not it? That the Bible tells us there will always be trials and obstacles and hurdles and adversity. All of those things are there in life. You don't be a Christian when those things are gone. You be a Christian in and through those things. You trust that he is with you and empowering you working through this. Nehemiah knows this. He is determined to not get distracted. Look at verse 8. Look what he says. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Nehemiah is able to recognize that all this stuff that you're saying about what's going to go down is trying to get me away from the work. It's not even true what y'all are saying to me. You invented that. You're making up lies and gossip and you're doing that. And I'm going to stay focused. Nehemiah models for us determination. Church, I want you to be encouraged today that God will use your life. 
God will use your life to get his glory. And God will use your life to encourage other people. God will use your life to build up other believers that are in your world. May you not get distracted and lose sight of that. May you stay the course. May you wake up tomorrow going, here. there's a lot of things that are going to get in the way, but I know this is what I need to do. It's a small illustration that I've used many times, but it absolutely applies to you as a believer. If the mailman stops to yell at every barking dog, he will not be able to deliver all the mail. You understand that? If the mailman stops at every barking dog, he will not be able to deliver the mail to every home. And so it is for you as a follower of Christ. If you get distracted by every difficulty in your life, everybody that talks bad about you, every Facebook post, if you're trying to control the narrative, you're not going to get around to just living joyfully for Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you. You're not going to live a life that has been set free by the forgiveness of sins. Do not let this world where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Live in light of the overcoming, not in light of all the trouble. Be determined to stay focused. I want to share this story with you. This is a story that comes out of the sinking of the Titanic. It's fitting because Wednesday night we had our Pinewood Derby race here and the car that won best in show, the little wooden block, was a replica of the Titanic. Mr. Graham Beatty had the coolest uh, race car here. Wasn't the fastest, but it was the coolest race car here. And it was the Titanic. I want to read this story to you coming out of the Titanic sinking. One of the passengers aboard the Titanic was a godly pastor from Scotland by the name of John Harper. Harper had recently spent three months ministering at the Moody Church in Chicago. He had not been back in Britain long when he was asked to return. So he from, 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 from England, came to Chicago, went back there, and now he's coming back to Chicago. He had not been back in Britain long when he was asked to return. He quickly made arrangements for himself and his six-year-old daughter, Nana, to return via the Titanic. The Titanic struck the iceberg on April the 14th of 1912. Harper wrapped his daughter in a blanket, told her that she would see him again one day, and watched her safely board one of the lifeboats. His daughter survived. One survivor direct, distinctly remembered hearing him shout, women, children, and the unsaved into the lifeboats. Harper knew that believers were ready to die, but the unsaved were not ready to die. Harper then ran along the decks pleading with people to turn to Christ. He then called upon the Titanic's orchestra to play the song, Nearer My God to Thee. Gathering people around him on deck, he then knelt down and with holy joy in his face, he raised his arms in prayer and as the ship began to sink, he jumped into the icy waters and he swam frantically to all that he could reach, beseeching them to turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. John Harper then sank into the depths and passed into the Lord's presence when he was 39 years old. Four years later, in 1916, a young Scotsman named Agia Webb stood up in a church meeting in Hamilton, Canada, and gave this testimony. I am a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow also on a piece of wreckage near me. 
Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The waves bore him away. But strange to say, the waves brought him back just a little later. And he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said to me again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And shortly after that, he went down. And there, alone in the night, with two miles of water underneath me, I believed. And I am John Harper's last convert. What a story, right? If your boat sank and you were in icy water, separated from your six-year-old, while hundreds and hundreds of people are drowning, it's good reason to be distracted, isn't it? It's good reason to perhaps lose focus of what our calling is. But John Harper modeled determination to be faithful to Christ. Nehemiah models that as well. Church, may we be determined to stay focused on the work and not get distracted. But while it was the determination that drove Nehemiah, we want to next look at his drive. Number two, he was driven to be obedient to God. Nehemiah knew that it was God's will to use him. In order to be used by him, he was driven to be obedient to God. We see Nehemiah's heart throughout this book because he would often pray. Some of y'all remember several weeks ago when I talked about that quickie prayer where it said he was talking to the king, but he prayed to God. Some of y'all remember that from chapters 1 and 2. Here I want to show you some more of those prayers. Look at chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9, he prays. It says, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, and then he says, uh, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. In the midst of all of those distractions, in the midst of the lies and the gossip and the falsehood and the fake friendships, in the midst of the deceit to try to lead him into the temple, acting like he would be safe there, Nehemiah knows I will not disobey God. Nehemiah cries out in a very brief prayer, God, strengthen me. Strengthen me. Nehemiah was driven to be obedient to God. If you jump down to verse 14, you see a different prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sambalai, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. In other words, God, remember them. Remember that they are doing wrong. Remember that this is not correct. He was driven. He was focused. But now I want you to read with me starting in verse 15. The wall is finished, so then we get to verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Now would be a great time to preach a sermon on how much, how much the success of the believer brings discouragement to the unbeliever. But I don't really preach sermons like that. But that's what happens here. They were let down. They were discouraged. They were deflated because it had happened. But look at the end of verse 16. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. 
Nehemiah knows that for all the work he's doing, for all the effort he's given, for all the determination and resolve he has to have, for all the courageous, faith-driven determination that he has, it is God working in and through him, which the Bible teaches from beginning to end. If there is anything good happening in and through us, it is not because of us. It is because of him. The Psalms teach us over and over again the beautiful prayer, not to us, O oh God, not to us, but to your name be the glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul, with such a successful life and ministry, stands up and says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Nehemiah models this same sort of thinking. Keep reading in chapter 6, verse 17. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehoanan, had taken the daughter of Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now, when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Look at this statement. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large. But the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. We see Nehemiah here stepping into this leadership role. The wall is finished, the project's done, but now it's even more time now to care about the people more than the project. You know, there's a fine line in life, isn't there? Projects and people. It's been said many times that life is about people. At the end of the day, we won't have stuff with us when we go, but people can go to heaven. People are what are more important than things, and I hope you know that. Nehemiah models this with his drive to be obedient to God because the work is finished. One might expect the leader of the project to finally have set back and found a place to just chill out and say, look what we've done. I mean, what a beautiful wall and how beautiful this is. And we're so great at doing that. Okay, what's the next project? Because that's more of my thing. But really, we see what we've been seeing from chapter 1, that the whole drive all along for Nehemiah was his heart for God, was his burden for God. The people were a reproach. God's name was a reproach. Somebody needs to be living faithful to God, and we need to change the direction of which it's going. And Nehemiah says, I will do something about it, and that's what we see. So as soon as the wall is finished, he is still driven in his obedience to God. I want to ask you today for a heart check. Is what you do, what you do because of God? Remember last week the sermon had the emphasis coming from chapter 5 verse 15 because of the fear of God. The motivation in our lives is for Jesus Christ to be lifted up, seen, magnified, and glorified. Nehemiah shows us here a drive inside of his heart by his faith to obey God. Commentator Betts speaking about uh, Nehemiah's focus upon the people writes this. God's concern for his people is holistic and all-inclusive. Therefore, we should also be diligent to care for people's spiritual and physical needs. Lest we forget, Jesus taught that when we care for others with physical needs, we are ministering to him. Failure to do so has severe consequences. 
Our helping people with physical needs is evidence of spiritual priorities as taught in Matthew 25. One might meet the physical needs of others and be devoid of any spiritual life, but it is impossible to be spiritually motivated to serve Christ and at the same time neglect the physically needy people around us. In other words, for the believer, caring for the physical needs of others is a spiritual endeavor. As James so aptly writes, it is evidence of our faith in Christ when we want to care for people spiritually and physically. Nehemiah models this here as the project was not his biggest goal. Obedience to God was. And in obedience to God, getting the project of the wall finished was just a step in the direction of caring for the people of God. Getting the people to get back to living by faith and living for God. That's the big goal. Church, may our goal never be things like buildings and numbers and lights and parking lots and seats and stuff. May it never be chairs. May it never be stuff that will rust and fade like Jesus warns. May the very heart of you and I be people and their souls. May we be driven to be obedient to God. I didn't read many good books when I was in high school, but when I got to college, I started reading some really, really, really good books. And there's a quote that I have had memorized since the year 2000 that I got early on from a John Piper book. And it says, the key to purity and holiness, the key to lasting effectiveness is the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ. Church, may there never be a time where we're not thinking about Jesus. May there never be a time where we're not longing for him to be seen in our lives. May there never be a time when you are not saying, oh God, be glorified in us. Another book I read early on was called The Man God Uses. You may have heard of this book before. And I went into it thinking, God, use me, God, use me. God, I want you to use my life. I want you to use my life. Only to read that book and to see that the book says, stop praying that so much. It says, instead of praying, God, use me, start praying, God, make me usable. Both of those prayers are good prayers, I know. But God, make me usable comes from a different angle. That the focus is on God. God, would you... Work in me so that the world might come to know you. God, make me usable. God, use me. There were plenty of times, tons of dark days, plenty of discouragement, lots of negativity. Nehemiah could have said, it's not worth it, man. But The Bible teaches the believer in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Nehemiah was determined to stay focused on the work and not get distracted. Nehemiah was driven to be obedient to God in order to be used by him. And lastly, Nehemiah was delighting in the work that God was accomplishing. Church, may we be people that love to look around and see what God is doing in the world. It depends on what you're looking at, doesn't it? It depends on what you're seeing. The old adage is the glass half full or half empty. 
One might look at the world right now and say, my goodness, where have we gone wrong? Everybody's going to hell in a handbasket. It just looks like there's nothing good going on. And then you show up to church and hear a number that I would never even have imagined that there are over 3,000 Spanish-speaking Southern Baptist con- congregations in the USA, and they are on mission for Christ to be faithful to his word. Man, God is working. Nehemiah looks around. He sees the task before him. He's fully aware that there's still a whole lot of work to do. We're just getting started, Nehemiah may have just said. But he's delighting in the work that God is accomplishing. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart. So he's not finished. Nehemiah was so not ready to quit with just the project. I told you it was the people. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first and I found written in it. So he's found. Ezra has this. If you look back in Ezra chapter 2, you'll see this list. He finds that list of all the people that are going to be coming back to Jerusalem. These were the people of the province who came out of the captivity. Of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshai, Mispered, Bigbai, Nehum, and Banah. Nehemiah sits around and says, we got a lot of work to do, but praise the Lord, we got a lot of work to do. Praise the Lord, there are a lot of opportunities here. Praise the Lord, there are a lot of people coming back into Jerusalem ready to get back focused on being the people of God. Nehemiah is delighting in the work that God is accomplishing I want to read for you all so that we just feel the heaviness of it the rest of the chapter. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parash, 2,172. The sons of Shephatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 652. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 845. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Babai, 628. The sons of Asgod, 2,322. The sons of Adoniakum, 667. The sons of Bigbai, 2,067. The sons of Aden, 655. The sons of Atur, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Hashem, 328. The sons of Bazai, 324. The sons of Harif, 112. The sons of Gibeon, 95. The men of Bethlehem and Netophah, 188. The men of Anatoth, 128. The men of Beth Asmaveth, 42. The men of Kiriath Jerim, Shafira and Biras, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the, the, men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Hiram, 320. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadid, Ono, 721. The sons of Sinai, 3,930. The priests, the sons of Jedidiah, 
or Jediah, namely the pass of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emer, 1,052. The sons of Pashbur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kadmiel. The sons of Hadavas, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatita, the sons of Shobai, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Zaha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Taboah, the sons of Kiras, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shammah, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gadel, the sons of Gahar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Maun, the sons of Nephufisim, the sons of Bakbuk. The sons of Hakafah, the sons of Her, Her, the sons of Bezlit, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tamah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophareth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jelah, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pochereth, Hesabim, the sons of Ammon, all the temple servants. And the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer. But they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Bezer, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzili, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. And here we get some conclusions. The whole assembly together was 42,360 people. I felt like I just read that many names. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their own towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Do y'all remember back in chapter 1 where Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, living his whole life like Jerusalem's a has-been? Nobody's there. It's not even a city. There's no homes there. There's no walls. There's nothing. And do you remember when the guys walked up in chapter 1 and they had just come back from checking out Jerusalem and Nehemiah said, how is it? He said, it's not good. Here we are 52 days later, and there's a city. And 42,000 people are moving back in. God is working. 
Is this the end goal? No, not at all. Work, but God is working. Nehemiah is able to delight in the work that God is accomplishing. Warren Wearsby quoting on this long passage of chapter 7 says, The important thing is not to count the people, but to realize that the people counted. Isn't that good? The important thing is not to, realize, not to count the people, but to realize that the people counted. In leaving Babylon, they did much more than put their names on a list. They laid their lives on the altar and risked everything to obey the Lord and to restore the Jewish nation. They were, quote, pioneers of faith who trusted God to enable them to do the impossible. Hey, on one hand, you could look around and think, man, eh. Christianity seems to be just struggling so much. On the other hand, you could look around at life after life after life. I've had people this week say, I'm ready to get my life focused on the Lord. I've had people this month come to me and say, hey, it is past time for me to get back focused on the Lord. I want to be a part of church. I want to be in the word. I want to be growing. I've seen marriages say, hey, help us get focused on Jesus. I've seen people that are far from God in recent times say, hey, we're ready to get back centered on the Lord. We could look around in all different directions and we could say, man, this is discouraging. Or we could say, God is working there. There's a football coach on staff for Fairdale football team. He came from Shelby County. And the other day he said that, he asked me if I knew such and such. And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. I said, how do you know him? He said, man, I'm going to church out at this church now because my son has that friend. And he said over the last two years of coming to eat dinner here on Fridays and us just pushing towards the Bible and pushing toward trusting in Christ, that he got back into a local church around here. Isn't that awesome? There's life after life after life where God is working. Betts, commentating on chapter 7, says, Nehemiah 7 is so much more than a list of people who returned from Babylonian exile. This is a record of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to his promises to restore Jerusalem and his people. It is a reminder that God's work concerns much more than brick and mortar. God saves his people so that the nations and all of creation might look at him and wonder. By his grace, God uses people to do his good work. In the passage that we read earlier, from Philippians chapter 1, that you had the pleasure of hearing today in Spanish and in English, that's the passage where God says, I am confident of this very thing. That the work that God started in you he will accomplish. Church, there's reason to be distracted, I know. We've got a whole list of excuses of why we're not as Christian as we would like to be. May you get a determination and a drive and a delight to say, no longer am I gonna coast. No longer am I gonna be a plateaued Christian. No longer am I gonna make a good excuse for why I'm not gonna obey him this way or obey him that way. I'm ready to get focused on what God is doing in the world and what God is doing in me. May this morning through Nehemiah's example and through the wall being finished, may you pledge faithfully to say, God, finish it in me. Make me like Christ. Give me a heart for your glory. Use my life. Make me usable. He will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you.
that what you start, you finish. And what you started in Nehemiah, you finished as far as building the walls. God, thank you that we know this to be the case in the life of the believer. You have not left us. Father, today, may we renew determination and drive and commit to Christ, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. Father, thank you for our study. May we, with open hearts and minds, resolve to commit ourselves to you. God, forgive us of our sins and strengthen our faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.